Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is Wednesday, March 13th of 2013, and our guest this evening is Dr. Robert Schwabel. He is the creator of the Seven Challenges program, and before we bring him on, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, uh, Robert Schwabel, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Robert? I'm doing fine, and it's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, I was really happy to come across your program because I saw that it incorporated harm reduction principles in a treatment program for teenagers, and I think a lot of programs that expect uh, total abstinence from teenagers, um, they're unreasonable, and I think they even are likely to backfire for that reason. Yes, our program really is fundamentally different from the mainstream approaches. You know, I've characterize the mainstream approaches to working with adolescents as the mad rush for abstinence. <laughs> the kids walk through the door. They didn't even choose to be there in the mo- in most cases. They're being dragged in by their collar, and they're greeted by these adults who you know, go on and on and on about the dangers of drugs and tell them, we have a solution for you. You need to quit. And the kids, for the most part, don't even think they have a problem. They think what they're doing is normal for adolescents. You you know, you use for a couple of years, then you quit. I can stop whenever I want. Everyone in my neighborhood's doing it. So they don't think they have a problem. They don't think their life will be better without drugs. And people come in and say, I have this solution for you. Quit quit using. It's just a total mixed, uh, you know, they don't, it's two ships passing at sea there. Mm-hmm. Now, what uh, what is your background? How how did you come to invent this program? Well, um, actually, uh, my my background is uh, I was fortunate enough to learn most of what I learned about working with people who have alcohol or drug problems outside of graduate school. I was a I went to graduate school at the University of California Berkeley, but I worked with uh, Claude Steiner, who wrote. A uh, number of books, Healing Alcoholism, Lies, let's see, Healing Alcoholism, Scripts People Live, um, trying to think of some other titles. And uh, so that's how I got involved in working with the drug issues. I came here where I live, to Tucson, Arizona, and I became the director of a local uh, prevention and drug treatment center. And um, I wrote a book called Saying No is Not Enough, which really was a prevention book written for parents. After I wrote it, I was approached by a local treatment center, and they said, would you develop a a drug treatment program specifically for us? And I said said something that, looking back on it now, seems quite funny. I said, I don't think you'd be interested in in what I would recommend. Uh, You come in, you blast the kids with how dangerous drugs are. You tell them they need to quit. You promise parents drug-free kids overnight program has to be developmentally appropriate, has to help, you know, it's adolescents, you have to help them think it through for themselves, you have to help them arrive at their own decisions. Well, I thought that would be the end of it, but I didn't realize since I had written this book that was rather popular, they wanted me to develop a program anyway. I thought what I could do is kind of look around the country, take something off the shelf, 
and bring it in, but I found that most of what was out there for kids was just basically 12 steps or watered down 12 step programs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I had kind of said what a program ought to be, and I kind of put my foot in my mouth. I had to figure out what it was going to look like after that. Mm-hmm. Well, what are the seven challenges? Could you uh, just uh, kind of read them off for us? Sure. I mean, probably a better way to explain it, and then I could I could actually read the challenges to you, mm-hmm. is that um, my thinking was this, is that young people come in and they don't think they have a problem, and basically we have to make it a safe enough place where they can talk openly and honestly about what they're thinking. And that's a huge task because there's a lot of trust issues between adolescents and adults. And uh, one of the interesting statistics with adolescents is between 40 to 80% of all the adolescents who go in for drug counseling have trauma issues. So there's a very, very big uh, issue of trust. So the the first of all of the challenges is we decided to open up and talk honestly about ourselves and about alcohol and other drugs. That's the first challenge, and it's really... It never goes away. I mean, the, the the hard work for people who are working with youth with, with drug issues is to try to create and maintain a sense of safety, that, that they've come to a place where they'll really have an opportunity to think things through for themselves. Um, the second challenge uh, is what is uh, quite counterintuitive to many people, we looked at what we liked about alcohol and other drugs and why we were using them. Our point of view there is if we're helping people make decisions in terms of the costs and and the benefits of their drug use, this challenge, too, looking at what we like about alcohol and other drugs is really the window to understand why people are are using drugs and what benefits they're getting from it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's interesting. You know, I mentioned the... The uh, traditional approach is you kind of come in and you talk about the harm. And uh, that is our third challenge. We looked at our use of alcohol and other drugs to see if it had caused harm or could cause harm. But the fact is most kids have been it's like beaten to death with the dangers of drugs. They've had the D.A.R.E. program. They've seen the public service announcements. They've heard, you know, I've had countless people telling them how dangerous drugs are. From the counseling point of view, the much more interesting question is this. Given that they know how dangerous drugs are, why do they keep using it? What is it that they're getting from drugs? What are the needs that they're satisfying? Uh, What are the needs they're attempting to satisfy through their use of of drugs? So uh, we end up then kind of putting it together with the first three challenges is we have to make it safe enough for the kids to open up and talk honestly, challenge one, helping young people understand what the good things are that they're getting from their drug use, what are the benefits, and then weighing them against challenge three, which is the harm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what you've just said will come as uh, no surprise or shock to uh, the members of our HAMS program. Um, we have 17 elements, and the first element, which is recommended, you don't have to do it, but we recommend writing out the cost-benefit analysis, the decisional balance sheet. Here's the pros and cons of the way you use alcohol now, the pros and cons of the change you want to make. And we say it's very important to recognize that there are positives 
for drinking or you wouldn't do it. And if you don't recognize that they're positives, they'll stay in your subconscious, they'll sneak up on you. And moreover, if you recognize, say, alcohol helps me relax, you can find other ways to relax if you want to relax without alcohol. So it's it's hugely important to recognize both the good and the bad of the way you are now and the good and the bad of the change you want to make. There will be some bad things about the change you want to make, and you want to be prepared for those. We're precisely on the same page on that. And, in fact, um, what what I like to say is there are good reasons that people are using alcohol and other drugs and and very logical ones and understandable mm-hmm. ones. It's you know this business of shaming people about the fact that they drink or use drugs is ridiculous. You know, you take a young person um, who who says, "Gee, I'm on probation. I need to quit using, and I just used, and I I can't understand what's going on." And then you begin to ask, and you say, "What was going on?" Well, it was this thing. I couldn't fall asleep at night, and why mm-hmm. couldn't I'm worried about things. And what happens if you if you don't take drugs? I worry all night. Um, I have a miserable night, and then the next day I don't go to school and I get in trouble, or I do go to school tired and I get in trouble. So from that young person's point of view, the choice was stay up all night, be miserable, have a bad day in school, and get in trouble, or use drugs. So for that young person. That was the, the logical choice. Well, of course, what we want to do is exactly what you said: is give people an opportunity to expand their options. There are, you can get help in terms of dealing with what's keeping you awake. You can, there are ways to work with insomnia that will allow you to sleep without using medication or without self-medicating. Um, counseling is available to help you figure out what what you worry about. There are strategies for calming yourself down and relaxing that could help you with sleep. So what we want to do with the seven challenges is support young people in learning to deal with life rather than walking into their lives and saying, you know what, I want to take your coping mechanism away from you because Mm -hmm. it's wrong, it's bad, and it's a poor choice. We want to be on their side supporting them and helping them figure out how to have good lives. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Pat Denning has said in her book, um, you don't take away someone's coping mechanism until you you they have another one in place that works. Right. And, you know, sometimes it's a matter of coping mechanisms and being able to fall asleep and relax and deal with anxiety. And, by the way, as I pointed out, there's so much trauma. Deal with the pain of the trauma. Sometimes people just have to say, have to learn that you know, rather than self-medicating this bad feeling, I might choose to endure it. That I'm, I have the strength to endure the sadness or this pain or this um, anxiety. So uh, we, we want to help people be strong and have great lives. We're not interested in taking away the the one coping mechanism that, from their point of view, works best when we first meet them. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to the first challenge because I think it's hugely important that you give people a space where they can talk honestly about what they feel. You go into traditional treatment, and if you try to be honest and say, I really like my drugs, they say, we're going to throw you out if you say that. 
Yeah, well, if you if you say you're going to keep using, they may throw you out, which I think is ridiculous. Because why why can't people get help just because they're not doing what the counselors wish they would do? I mean, it's like if someone was depressed, and the counselor said, "You have to be happy," and they say, <laughs> "I'm not happy." Well, sorry, I can't help you. You're not happy. It's it's kind of ridiculous to set it as a as a precondition, and we really do have to make it safe and. Um, and young people have reason to to be worried about speaking honestly because in so many situations, if they talk honestly, they only get in more trouble. Mm-hmm. We have to really be clear about what we can keep, what we keep confidential, and and what the limits of the confidentiality are, so that uh, there there is a sense of safety. And really, I mean, our, we talk about giving people what we call guest status when they first enter our program. That is, they don't know us from a hole in the wall. Probably their parents or the courts drag them in to talk with us. Why should we expect them to immediately just open up and start talking honestly? We have to work with them, and we have to do our part to create a safe atmosphere in which they feel that they can talk, and they have every right to kind of check us out. I call it guest status kind of jokingly. It's almost like, here, here's some coffee and a Danish. Sit down, make yourself comfortable, and see what you think. Yeah, I've been through two traditional treatment programs, and, you know, that's the last thing they wanted was uh, me to give them an honest answer. I mean, I got in I got in trouble for giving an honest answer. <laughs> it's very disarming, uh, in fact, when we work with young people and we ask them, what they like about drugs, mm-hmm. they said, no one has ever asked me that. Mm-hmm. It's like no one is interested in what's going on. No one's interested in what their lives are like. All they want to do is tell them to say no so that they can go and tell everyone we have a great program because all of our kids say they're going to quit. And, you know, we know what happens with youth when adults come in with this mad rush for abstinence we get what I describe as the four F's, and I'd like to tell you about that if it's okay. Yes, please. We have the fakers. These are the kids who recognize that the adults want them to quit. The adults have all the power. They tell the adults they're going to quit, and counseling becomes teaching relapse prevention, teaching the behavior of abstinence to people who have absolutely no desire to quit, and it's just a total waste of time, money, resources. So you get the fakers. Then you get the fighters. And there's two types of fighters, we say. One are the aggressive fighters. The adults come in and say, you need to quit. And the youth basically say, F you. You can't make me. So we get into these battles with them. Or we get the passive-aggressive fighters. I kind of joke about that. Those are the ones that cross their arms put their feet up on the chair, say something like, marijuana is harmless, it grows in the earth. And the next thing you know, the counselor is going through countless ways to try to talk them out of using drugs and convince them that they're being harmed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you get these kids who don't think they have a problem, don't think their life would be better without drugs, and then the adults who come in trying to make them quit right away, so some of them fake, some of them fight, and a lot of them flee. They drop out or if they're in some sort of a residential setting or a juvenile justice setting, they're physically present and then they're emotionally absent. So we get the fakers, fighters, fleers. The fourth F is what I call the followers. And these are the young people who 
the counselors really reach. You know, these are the young people who connect with, here's an adult who cares, who's telling me I need to quit using drugs. I'm going to try to quit. And these counselors are so focused on getting these kids to quit, they don't deal anything with the underlying issues, the motivating factors, the everything that's driving the drug use behavior. So these kids, to say they're going to quit, they mean it. And they end up trying to quit. They have success for two weeks, two and a half weeks, and then they end up using again, and they feel like failures mm-hmm. because the groundwork wasn't laid for any any type of success. The focus was so narrowly on trying to get them to quit without understanding their situation, without giving them coping mechanisms for the situation. And it's really a very sad um, outcome. Mm-hmm. So does your program work to give uh, people coping mechanisms and to deal with the underlying issues that drive the drug use? Yes. Um, Actually, uh, the program, I was originally asked to develop a a drug counseling program, and I said from the beginning, this was part of that time I went in, I said, I don't really think you want me. I said, there's really no such thing as just drug counseling, that – you know, the people use drugs for reasons to to satisfy needs and to attempt to satisfy needs, um, and that the only way to really help people uh, with, with with to really really effectively help people in terms of their drug issues is to is to have a comprehensive counseling that incorporates work on drug issues. So. For example, if you discover people are using drugs because of uh, sleep, sleeping problems, we help them with sleep issues. If kids are using, or youth, the young adults are using drugs because of depression, they get help with a depression issue. If it's driven by social anxiety, we teach social skills. A lot of kids have anger issues, and um, they're using drugs uh, sometimes to uh, modify their anger so they won't do something crazy and get in trouble. And sometimes to let out their anger, some of the drinking can can be that to kind of release the anger. So we want to help them uh, solve problems that issues that are making them angry, teaching them anger management skills. So it's really a comprehensive program for adolescents that incorporates work work on on drug issues. It's not you know we're you know I'm critical of what's called single issue counseling as if you just say no to drugs, and, and, and you focus narrowly on the drug use behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, well, you asked me about the seven challenges, by the way, and I, I went through some of them. I'll, I'll skip ahead to one that I think, you know, I think I went through challenges one, two, three. Our six challenges, we made thoughtful decisions about our lives and about our use of alcohol and other drugs. And the thing that I think is important to notice is that it does not say we committed to abstinence. It doesn't say we cut back even. It doesn't say we decided to reduce the harm. Basically, this is a model where we want to help young people think things through for themselves, which is Mm -hmm. developmentally appropriate. Adolescents are supposed to be figuring out who they are and where they stand. And in our drug-filled society, one of the things they need to do is figure out who they are and where they stand in relationship to drugs. So our sixth challenge really sticks with we want to help young people make thoughtful decisions about our lives and about our use of alcohol and other drugs. So the holistic nature of the program is is carried through to this, where young people will both be deciding 
if there are changes they want to make in terms of their drug use and the corresponding changes they need to make in terms of their lives. Mm-hmm. And then challenge seven, by the way, is following through. Six, you make the challenge, and seven is you follow through on the decision. If we saw problems, we went back to earlier challenges and mastered them. So we're not trying to tell kids what to do that's not developmentally appropriate. We're not trying to tell kids what to do because it's not appropriate in counseling. Counseling is about helping people become aware of their options and expand their options uh, and then make their own choices. We're we're doing what is really developmentally appropriate, what's appropriate in, in terms of counseling, and what's really respectful of, of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's I see similarities to what we're doing with hams too, um, because we're not telling people what to do. Uh, we're telling people that found our organization. Here's how to do what you want to do, because we we are for people who want to be safer or reduce or quit, and we say here are methods to achieve the goal that you chose. But we have no. Uh, mission out there to change people's use. We just want right, to supply, I, in, yeah, we want to supply information for people who've chosen to make a change. Here are the tools to implement what you want to do. Yes, I read about that, and I think that it, it's fantastic to have that. Um, that um, I, I think one, and, and here I think is one of the differences between being an adolescent, a program for adolescents and young adults in, in your program. Mm-hmm. which is people are seeking you. People are coming to you and saying, I have an issue. I would like some support in changing my behavior. What we have is different with adolescents. They're being dragged in by their collars. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. not saying, I have a problem. They're not saying they want to change their lives. They're not saying anything is wrong with their lives, and they're not saying they necessarily have a problem with drugs. So we have to back up a, a step further back. I mean... One of the many things that kind of misfire with adolescents and 12 steps is that they're, they're completely different um, stages of change. Mm-hmm. When people go to 12 steps, they're looking for support for a particular decision that they made. It's a support group. Uh, we're talking with youth who have made no decision whatsoever. It's totally inappropriate to say we have a spiritual solution for, for a problem you don't even think you have. Honestly, it'd be equally inappropriate to say we have a cognitive behavioral solution to a problem that you don't think you have. Mm-hmm. The first issue with young people is to is to get them thinking about their lives, thinking about where drugs fit in their lives, trying to determine if it is a concern of theirs. If so, um, would they uh, like to, uh, if they're using it, to, if it's creating problems in their lives, would they like to gain some understanding of what needs they're meeting through their drug use? Would they like to become aware of other ways of meeting those needs? And if so, do they want to make some sort of decisions to, to change? At which point, uh, we're kind of at the same place you are. Once they make decisions to change, how do they want to follow through on their decisions? So we get kids earlier in, in the change process than, than the adults who, who, who seek you out. But the bottom line is you kind of go back and do what we try to do in the beginning, which is help people understand what needs the drugs have been meeting for them, 
there's a lot of similarity. I think we just have to approach it in a somewhat different way because the kids didn't choose to come to us. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first invented hams, um, I I thought I I wanted this to be for everybody, uh, whatever age. And uh, I was taking that tech, and my board and my advisory board and all experts we asked said, no, your program's for adults, not young people. Make it for people over 21. So I I realize now that they were correct. So our program is actually aimed at people over 21, and uh, we're we're really not dealing with people under 21 right now. We kind of chose that because that's the drinking mm-hmm. age cutoff, of course. Um, interesting enough, you see, I think one of one issue that we have in working with youth is. Uh, the youth who decide they want to make changes in their lives need mm-hmm. ongoing support. I and, agree. you know, we're a counseling group. You know, we're a counseling program, and counseling can't go on forever. There's a tremendous need for recovery help for the adolescent age group. And I think um, I'm on the same page with your board that uh, from the point of view of a starting place, hams might be a mismatch. However... I'm on board with you. Once people decide they want to make decisions in their lives and they want to make changes, whether it's reducing harm or abstinence or whatever decisions they make, they really do need support. And it seems to me there could be a place where something like either HAMS or something like HAMS would be a tremendous resource for youth because so often uh, people are stuck who work with adolescents that you know where you know if kids are away at a juvenile justice setting or they're in a residential treatment center or they're you know they're you know with the horrible health care in this country they're cut off because their sessions are used up um they need support and, and, and so often all that people can do is send them to 12 steps and honestly that's that's uh, that's only going to help a very small fraction of the kids who need support uh, for other types of decisions, and including the kids who choose abstinence. There's so many other ways to support abstinence, but the kids who need support for abstinence, the kids who want to reduce harm, the kids who want to uh, you know, use in moderation. Um, well, we, we, did, uh, we did create a separate group called Students for Safe Drinking, which uh, was for the younger people. Um, it hasn't really developed since then, but uh, maybe sometime after the show, we could talk more about um, creating a, or working on a group for younger people because, you know, I do think it, it is really a necessary thing. And, you know, my board and everybody agreed, too, that this is a really good idea. But we thought, you know, having, a, since our group is mostly in their 40s, middle-aged, we thought, you know, mm-hmm. mixing the young people in, it's not going to work. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, we, could, we could kick this around after the show, you know. Yeah. Of course, you know what everyone's going to say. It's like, you're saying it's okay for underage people to, you know, that's, of course, the criticism that you hear. And I want to be clear, we're not saying it's okay or not okay. We're saying people are going to be doing it. And uh, and some of these underage kids are going to quit, and they should get have other options for support besides just 12 steps. And some, whether adults like it or not, are going to use, and we would like to see at least the harm minimized if they're using. Yeah, I never asked anyone's permission to drink alcohol. I don't know anyone who has. (laughs) That's a good point. 
Well, let's see. We didn't look at Challenges 4 and 5 yet. Do you want to talk about those? Sure. Challenge 4 is uh, it's we looked at our responsibility and the responsibility of others for our problems. And the reason that one is thrown in, it's a little different than the others. The others are sort of a kind of follow along. It kind of leads to, to, to is sort of a decision-making tree. I think one of the things we see, well, with people, this I guess applies to adolescents and uh, young adults and adults alike, is there's a lot of blaming and shaming and it's all your fault and, you know, you're a bad person. And, and it's very hard for people to do what we're asking them to do, which is to honestly look at their drug use and to admit to problems if they feel ashamed of themselves. So I started thinking about this challenge as a way to help reduce excessive self-blame. Um, the uh, the statistic I quoted before about trauma, 40 to 80 percent of the kids have trauma issues. Um, and that's in the national survey. The range, by the way, is because they did a national survey across the country, and the low end of all the agencies they surveyed, 40 percent of the kids, the high end, 80 percent of the kids. And the measure was the gain inventory, which is kind of the gold standard for research on adolescents. So we know there's this very significant issue that these kids have, have trauma issues. And to put it another way, adults have, have violated their trust. Uh, they have not been in a safe environment. They've been exposed to, to trauma. So, and, and this is one of the ways that, you know, Seven Challenges is, is quite different from 12 Steps. 12 Steps talks about making amends. And, you know, it wouldn't be fair to say that some of these adolescents haven't done some bad things in their lives, but it's way out of whack to have them making amends when you think about what's been done to them. And, you know, when we work with uh, youth with drug issues, so many of them, uh, have uh, poverty issues, have um, uh, victims of racism, grow up in families with uh, drug drug abuse, with with um, deprived opportunities. There's so much that goes on which make people feel bad and which make people turn towards drugs as a way of coping with the issues in their lives. So we wanted to do something about excessive self-blame. And then there's the opposite side of it. As bad as the world is, as much as we legitimately, I mean, these, a lot of these kids have real, real legitimate reasons to be angry. As much legitimate anger there is that should be validated, the bottom line is we can't sit around and wait for the world to change if we want our own personal lives to get better. So we also have to take responsibility and step up to the plate and um, and and. Um, rise to the occasion. So the challenge for is we looked at our responsibility and the responsibility of others for our problems, trying to create a sense of balance uh, and reduce the excessive self-blame so people will admit the problems and also uh, reduce the, the uh, blaming the world for everything sort of approach, which doesn't allow people to step up and take their own power. So mm -hmm. that's challenge four. Challenge five is about the future. Challenge five is we thought about where we seem to be headed, where we wanted to go, and what we wanted to accomplish. Uh, this is an important challenge for adolescents because 
adolescents are sort of between childhood and adulthood, and one of the uh, goals of adolescents is to prepare for adulthood. So it's very important that they look toward the future. And it's interesting if you're talking with a 13- or 14-year-old and they're describing their lives, they say, I got up, I got high, I didn't go to school, you know, I had breakfast, I told my mom I was going to school, I went over by the river, I got high again, I came home, I drank a little, um, I had dinner, and I went to bed, and you're 12 or 13 years old, life can look pretty good, everything's fun, everything's, you know, Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, the harm from drug use in terms of adolescence is thinking ahead of where is this going to lead me. Now, okay, the next thing you know, you're 18 and you have one high school credit and you've been getting higher drinking all through these years and uh, there's sort of a cultural expectation that you're going to go out and either go to for further schooling or you're going to go for higher education and you're you're not prepared. So, with adolescents, we want to make sure when they're thinking, weighing the benefits versus the harm, doing, as you call it, a cost, you call it cost-benefit analysis? Or, yes. Uh, when you're doing the cost-benefit analysis, you have to incorporate looking to the future, to the cost. So our challenge is we thought about where we seem to be headed, where we wanted to go. We want kids thinking to the future and what we wanted to accomplish. Now, the reasoning here is we're, um, is, uh, is uh, I guess, the harm from drugs, which is our challenge three, gets people thinking about, gee, maybe there's a problem here, or this has caused me some harm. But what ultimately gets people to make changes is somehow having a belief that their future could be better. So challenge five, when we look to the future, part of, Challenge five is is inspiring young people with hope that their life could be better and giving them the support to make their lives better. So challenge five enters into the decision-making because you can look kind of where you're headed and you're headed towards trouble. And it also fits in with decisions to change because challenge five is what we want to make of our life, where we want to go in our future, what we want to accomplish, and are we really headed in that way or not? And if not, what sort of changes would we like to make, which we then make, in, as you may recall, in our Challenge 6, where we make thoughtful decisions about our lives and about our use of alcohol and other drugs. I wish I, I wish we had a visual here and you could see the challenges. It would probably make it easier. <laughs> Well, people can see those on your website. So what is the URL for your website? It's www.7challenges, and it's the word seven rather than the digit, dot com. www.7challenges.com. And we did put a link to that from the the show info. You can click. It will open in a new window. It won't... uh, take you away from the show you're listening to so uh you can get there from the show site i was curious uh have you ever encountered the work of dr alan marlatt oh yes i spoke i spoke with him before he passed away unfortunately as you know yes yes and um uh the, the work on harm reduction he was the pioneer in harm reduction and um uh, sadly, I'm working. I'm actually working on a, a textbook on 
on this, and I had thought that he might write the introduction or the preface. But I'm very aware of his work and his more recent emphasis on mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And, and, and um, have you seen his uh, the basics program for college students? Um, I, I know about it. I haven't actually seen it. I've heard about that. Yes. Uh, could you tell me a little and tell the listeners and we, get, we can see how that fits in with what we're talking about? Well, um, I can't really do it, do it justice off the top of my head. I wasn't thinking yeah. about but I can mention a little bit. Um, I do know one thing that a lot of uh, heavy drinkers in college think that their behavior is normal, that oh, everyone in college... Everyone in college is a heavy drinker, and one part is to talk about the average drinking pattern in college, and oftentimes the average is a lot less than the the really heavy drinkers believe the average to be. So they say, well, this is the average number, and, well, this is your number, Um, so, you know. Your number is not typical, and that's that's one small part of it. Right. Um, well, you did a great job of describing it after I put you on the spot there. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think the norms, and adolescents have the same thing. They say everybody uses, and when they make estimates about how much they're using, they way overestimate what everybody's using, and they don't recognize that some people are not using at all. Yes, and I, I think that's part of what we face in working with adolescents, that, that they'll come in and they'll say, it's the normal thing. That's what all adolescents are doing. And they'll say, you know, you use it for a couple of years, and then you'll quit as if it's that easy. Now, the truth is, and this is uh, where anyone in my profession, counseling profession, has to admit this, that the way most adolescents change is not 12 Steps, it's not the seven challenges. Most adolescents um, overcome drug problems by maturing out of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what the the vast you know they're, they're, the vast number of adolescents with drug problems simply mature out of them. And if you think of it as a cost benefit analysis, as you get older, uh, the uh, benefits of hanging around and feeling good all day are diminished because you're not. Uh, you're not making any progress in terms of your education or your profession. And the balance shifts, and people begin to recognize that, and they change. Now, the problem with, I mean, the argument could be made, well, if most of them are going to mature out of it, why don't we just leave them alone? Most of them will mature out of it. The problem with that is before they mature out of them, a lot of bad things can happen, number one. And number two, not everyone matures out of these drug problems. So really, what we want to do and what good counseling for adolescents and young adults is, is helping people become more mature, helping them take a closer look at, yeah, sure, when you're using, it helps you fall asleep, it helps you manage your anger, it can take away some of your pain. On the other hand, it can begin to interfere with having loving relationships. It can begin to mess up your education. It can um, begin to stand in the way of uh, holding a job and being successful. We basically, I mean, that's what we do in the seven challenges, and that's what you do in your cost, with a cost-benefit analysis. We want to help people think in more mature ways uh, about what they're doing. And um, so uh, those adolescent studies are just a minimal intervention and the work of Marlott, where he helped, he helps 
college students understand the norm. Just simply by telling them the norm makes quite a big difference. Um, the uh, it it falls in uh, I believe his program falls in the category of uh, brief uh, counseling. Now, one of the problems that I do see with brief counseling is it's going to help some people who just need a kick in the butt, you know, mm-hmm. people who just need to see, you know, you're doing a lot more. You know, you think this is what everyone's doing. Not everyone's doing it. It's a lot. Or, you know, or sort of motivational interviewing strategy of, you know, you're saying you want to succeed in in this career, but your use is keeping you from passing your subjects here in the university. You know, sometimes a kick in the butt like that will do it. And people say, you're right, and and brief programs can be effective. One of the problems with typical brief programs, however, is that if you're a trauma victim or take a a young woman who's been multiply raped and had no help with trauma recovery, and she, someone says to her, you know, look, um, you, you're, you're used, and she's self-medicating the trauma with, Mm-hmm. Drugs of some sort, or alcohol. Your 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 drug use is is going to stand in the way of your career. It's not like she can just stop because she stops using. There's all all of that trauma and pain, and the likelihood of her being successful is not great. She she's going to need more than that. I think I'm reminding, I'm remembering now something you said early on in our talk. We don't take away coping skills without giving new ones. Mm-hmm. So um, brief counseling can do a world of good on university settings, letting them know the norms and some of the other brief counseling programs, but we can't stop at that. There, are A lot of people need more than just kind of a kick in the butt. We're, I actually just rolled out a seven challenges brief program, but our, go- our idea is that it's only for people who are in short-term settings and it's meant to start them off that you know some that that little kick in the butt will be enough but for others we want to make sure that it leads to continued help and support after they get the the brief help and by the way um uh you mentioned Alan Marlott I have to say this that my older son is a currently a graduate student in clinical psychology at the University of Washington uh so um and that is where Dr. Marlott did his work. Yeah, and uh his colleagues are still carrying on his work yes. there. So it's a it's a great place. Uh we've uh interviewed uh a couple of his colleagues here. Uh Susan Collins is doing that great great research with the Seattle wet house there and you know, just housing people reduces their drinking so much. It's just a Yes. Yes. It it's amazing. Now, yeah, I wanted to uh, expand a little bit on what you were saying because it's so true. There's so much more research that's been coming out recently on the relationship of trauma and substance abuse, and it really does lead to substance abuse, and it makes it much more difficult for people to mature out of substance abuse naturally yes. if they have the trauma. So it really is essential that 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 this be addressed. Yes. We've had I've had discussions with drug court judges. You know, it's a it's a tough dilemma because the drug court uh, court people say they have to hold they have to hold uh, people accountable. 
But, you know, take that example I gave you of a young woman who's been multiply raped who said, um, okay, I'll choose abstinence and going to a drug court. The likelihood of her succeeding off the bat without setbacks and huge amount of help with the trauma is very slim. So is that really holding someone accountable or is that setting them up for failure? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in counseling, uh, one of the things we say in the seven challenges, we have to stop uh, setting these ridiculous out-of-reach goals that, by the way, with adolescents may be totally meaningless to cut back or to quit when they don't even think they have a problem, and start where people are at. And uh, and I think it's a quote from Marlott, in fact, to recognize success in small increments so that people can begin to feel successful. I mean, that's what we're doing in counseling, and I think part of what counseling professionals have to bring to the attention of the courts is that change comes in small increments, and holding people accountable, I think just as we have to rethink what is success in counseling, I think people in court settings and judges and uh, have to rethink what it means to hold someone accountable, that uh, we have to start thinking differently about how change occurs and that it, it's gradual and it's in increments. And rather than having people feel like they're failures because they're taking on something they're not ready to do or they don't even wish to do, let's find ways that they can be successful one time after another until they build up to really good and healthy decisions in their lives. And uh, since you mentioned uh, women who have been raped, I've heard so many stories about women in 12-step groups. And when they talked about uh how they were traumatized, how they'd been raped, the only answer they would get back is, what was your part? Oh, it's horrible. That's and horrible. it just, it was because you, in a 12-step group, if you're not if you're not looking at your own part, you're blaming others and you're not working yeah. the steps, you know. So there's no We have that all the that. time with counselors when we train them. It's always, what was your part? What was your part in this? And um, so many of these kids have had such horrible situations that, you know, well, with with rape, it's just, I mean, that's simple. There's no part. <laughs> but in situations where uh, there actually is a part, it's completely wrong to put the onus on people who are basically victims. You know, people, it, it's just um, it, it's just a terrible thing we have. And I think it fits with all the blame and the shame that, uh, you know, that, that drug use is just, you know, what we have is drug use that, the the traditional approaches to drug use with adolescents. Our kids are using drugs for basically three, one of three reasons or a combination of the three. Number one, they're spiritually deficient. Number two, they don't know the dangers. We have to teach them the dangers. And number three, they don't have the backbone to say no. They're weak-willed. And I think that is so superficial. You put all three of those together. There's no doubt that there are times that People, the people of various degrees of willpower. There's no doubt that um, that you could find deficiencies in, in, within individuals, and there's no doubt that sometimes people lack knowledge about the dangers of drugs. But the significant drive for adolescent drug abuse comes from comes from underlying issues. Kids who are living through the most difficult of situations, kids who have trauma issues, depression issues, anxiety issues, social anxiety, and aren't getting support to, to deal with them in healthy ways. And it so trivializes 
what's really going on. And it's so, the spirit is so mean-spirited and blaming. You know, if these kids would stop being, if, if all they have to hear is some spiritually uplifting thing and they're going to change, or all we have to do is talk about the dangers of drugs. And like I said, they've been beaten to death about the dangers of drugs. They've heard that over and over again. Or they need the willpower to say no. I mean, come on, give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> Well, since we talked about maturing out, there's one thing that I wanted to mention because I wrote an article very recently for our website. Uh, it's how neuroscience predicts spontaneous remission from addiction. And, you know, what I looked at the literature about maturing, and the older you get, the more risk averse you get. When you're adolescent, you're really willing to take a lot of risks. When you get older, you're less willing to take risks. And when you get into old age, you don't want to take risks at all. And these uh, high-risk behaviors like drug use, they become less and less appealing. And that really helps to explain why many people, when they get older, they don't want to play with drugs anymore. Right. Right. And it's very, it's very recent brain research about the maturing, I guess, of the frontal lobes, which is the basically impulse control and the ability to stop and think about things. Um, I guess that, that on the average, that, that maturity comes at age 25. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've, we really see our program as the seven challenges from adolescence through age 25. Yeah, the risk-taking behaviors peak between 13 and 16, then they start to go down gradually and as you said at age 25 that's when the frontal core prefrontal cortex is mature right so um unfortunately we can't wait <laughs> would be nice if we say come back when you're 25 and everything will be good well there's no reason not to help people when they're younger but you have to help right. them in a in a developmentally appropriate manner which is what you've been speaking exactly. about Exactly, and what we want to do is help develop that maturity. We want to help them. This is one of the principles in the seven challenges is we really want to help them develop what's called formal logical thinking so they can basically consider all of the possibilities and all of the consequences of all and outcomes of all the various possibilities and coordinate it in their mind and think them all through and then reach their own decision. So to any extent we do what you're talking about, which is help them before the brain reaches that maturity level, we're actually helping the brain mature as well as helping them make better behavioral choices for themselves. And we're going to be talking about that a lot tomorrow with our next guest for tomorrow because he's going to talk about the difference between global choice-making and local choice-making or short-sighted immediate choice-taking where you look, what looks good now as opposed to looking at the big picture, what's best in the context of everything. And economic theory actually teaches us a lot about choices. And um, this is mature choice-making, is looking globally and making global choices. Right. You know, we're fighting our evolutionary brain, which was... If there's fruit on the tree, you eat it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You don't know when the next there's going to be another piece of fruit in the future. The uh, it, you know the research about um, um, how people will take an immediate reward now rather than wait for something in the future, and that's exactly. I mean, that you can imagine what an issue that is with adolescents during this peak 
period of time where they're uh, taking risks and going out uh, looking for exciting things to do, they're not really thinking about the future. That's why our Challenge 5, is, I think, is so important. You know, we we thought about where we seem to be headed, where we wanted to go, and what we wanted to accomplish. Ken, I should also mention one thing I didn't even say, just in case people are interested, that part of the way the program works is through, well, we have individual group sessions, and we're in... Um, we're in juvenile justice setting, community agencies, schools, uh, home-based. We're, we're all over the place. And part of the program includes these nine journals that youth write in and counselors write back to the kids and the youth write back. So in addition to the counseling, whether it's individual or group or, or family, there's this very special communication that goes on in these journals where the youth write to the kids, the kids write back, and uh, it's interesting that people will write things that they wouldn't say in a face-to-face setting. So we I get a lot of things that kind of come out and they open through the written communication. Mm-hmm. Now, where is your program available? I know you're in Tucson. Is it available anywhere else? Yeah, we're actually, I, I think now, we're, I think there are 400 agencies across the country that use it, and some of them in, in a variety of different places. Um, it, it, it's really across the country. It started here in, in Tucson. And I, you know, when I first designed the program, I had no intention of it becoming this national program. We, um, The Center for Substance Abuse Treatment was looking for model programs, and they found one in Tucson. I didn't know they were looking. They came here to see that program, heard about us, rolled us in as the comparison group, and we had these outstanding outcomes, outperforming um, the, the ones they had picked. So it's sort of been word of mouth. The Center for Substance Abuse Treatment has been talking about us for years, and it's kind of snowballed from there. So we're scattered out around around the country. Um, I imagine you're asking in case people have youth who are or young adults looking to find the program. And yes. at our website, they, they they could contact Sharon Connor, who would whose name is listed on the website, and she would try to connect them to places. I wish we were everywhere. I wish we could. I mean, some one of the frustrations is we do get calls from people where we we just don't know where to send them. You know, there's. But uh, Sharon always does her best to to find try to find some place for them. And the last question, uh, what you just briefly touched on, is the evidence. What is the evidence base? You said it was tested against other programs. Yes, we. Um, um, I, 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 you know, one of the things that is unique about our program is that I developed it in the community. I'm not an academic who kind of dreamed it up. I really uh, developed it in the community, so I did not start out with any research. We were just fortunate enough to get rolled in as a comparison group in the national study sponsored by the Center for Substance Abuse Treatment. And they had us in various programs and to the point where there's enough evidence for us to be listed in what's called the National Registry of Evidence-Based Practices and Programs, uh, at SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Um, I know one of the findings that we were very happy with is that um, youth tend to show improvement um, after 
time has passed. I mean, it's quite typical. People go into counseling sort of at the worst moment in their life, and things are going to improve in the first three months anyway, even if they didn't go for counseling. So one of the important things to look at is what happens after that. And I know in um, at least one of the studies they followed up and found continued improvement after the initial period of improvement. And that was looking at both uh, improvement and reduction of drug problems, but also um, mental health improvement um, in terms of scales that measure um, issues related to mental health problems, and particularly trauma, uh, improvements in terms of trauma issues. Okay, well, we're running out of time, so I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. Robert Schwebel. It's been a great pleasure to be on your program. I'm very happy to hear about what you're doing, and I'm going to go from being an interviewee to a listener. (laughs) Thank you. So, everyone, come back tomorrow. Um, Our guest will be Dr. Jean Heyman, who has written a book called Addiction, a Disorder of Choice. Um, I'm reading the book. It's really interesting stuff, and we will see you all then. So, everyone, thank you, and good night.